0: So when I come to Genesis, it's not based on uh, any particular scientific view. I'm not. I have severe questions about the scope of evolution. And I think to a large degree, Walton is correct. I think the temple temple imagery in Genesis 1 is undeniable. What is it teaching astronomically in terms of the singularity and Big Bang uh, and, and the time period? Genesis wasn't written to answer those questions either.
1: Hey everyone, today we're going to be talking with JM about how to interpret Genesis 1-3 to as well as common mistranslations in Genesis. Uh, JM, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself as well as what you do on your channel.
0: So I run a channel called Disciple Dojo on YouTube, and that's the name of our ministry. We're an online teaching and Christian discipleship ministry uh, based here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I also do an outreach where I teach anti-bullying and self-defense to refugee, immigrant, and lower-income kids here in Charlotte. So that's part of the uh, whole martial arts theme of Disciple Dojo. But um, I... I focus in my bible teaching on old testament and on issues about mm, how the bible basically hermeneutic issues how how scripture works together and the, between the two testaments and the background of the old testament is kind of my, more my wheelhouse uh, my hebrew's a little better than my greek but both are uh, mediocre <laughs> at best yeah i would be what is broadly defined as evangelical christian um, right, in cool. the Wesleyan Methodist tradition.
1: Okay. All right. And can you tell us about your general views on Genesis as far as genre, histor- uh, whether you think uh, Genesis one to eleven is historical, and other types of uh, your intricate views on Genesis?
0: Yeah, I think that uh, for me personally, the best way—and I've shared this on the Disciple Dojo podcast—the best way to understand Genesis one through eleven. As opposed to 12 through 50, is the beginning voiceover in the Lord of the Rings movie. It began with the forging of the Great Ring, three given to the elves, seven to the Dwarf lords. For within these rings was bound the strength and will to govern each race. In the land of Mordor, in the fires of Mount Duke, the Dark Lord Sauron forged in secret our master ring to control all others. Where you have tons of information and you have whole epochs and millennia worth of events that are happening in this place called Middle Earth. But that's not really what they're trying to do in that opening voiceover on Lord of the Rings. They're trying to get you to the point where the story with Bilbo, Frodo, and Gandalf will start making sense. And I think that's what Genesis 1 through 11 is doing with Israel, the covenant, and the the descendants of Abraham, basically. So everything in Genesis 1 through 11, whatever we think of it, whatever we interpret it as, we have to keep in mind that the point The author's point is to get us from how did everything get going to who is this guy Avram or Abraham as we come to know him later and why is he important and then who is this God of the covenant that's made with these people in the land and what is that all about. So everything in Genesis 1-11, through the primary focus is making sense of the descendants of Abraham and what they're doing in the land and what God's whole purpose
1: is with them there. What would you say the genre of Genesis is? I if
0: you survey all the commentators that have tried to talk about what the genre of Genesis is, you'll come up with as many ideas as there are interpreters, especially for Genesis 1 through 11, because it doesn't really fit anything from the ancient world at least that I'm familiar with and that most scholars seem to be familiar with. It's been called, well, of course in like super Uh, more fundamentalist interpretations. It's all just straight, literal, scientific precision. And that's where you get kind of young earth creationism and that stuff from. But then you have people calling it like myth, which, you know, in a broad understanding of the term myth, like mythos, the Greek word, you could maybe make a case that it's something like that. But it's still, unlike myth, roots itself in history. There are events and people and places and names that are historical to some degree so calling it myth is as to me unsatisfactory as calling it you know science or history it's something in between especially 1 through 11 it's this it's almost like saga or epic uh elevated prose is how genesis 1 has been called which is a term i like because it's not straight prose but it's also not poetry it's something that in the ancient world especially genesis 1 you know the very very early part of genesis but including 1 through 11. it has shades and echoes of other ancient near east writing but it doesn't fit any one in particular
1: would you say that adam and eve are historical
0: you would have to qualify first a lot of things what you mean by historical and this this some people get frustrated at this point especially apologetics minded people They want quick answers. They want something they can give on a street corner Mm -hmm. or in a lecture, in a debate or something like that. And when you get into biblical scholarship and the more I go in my own biblical studies, the more I see we have to start being more careful with the words we use and checking the assumptions that we're bringing to those words. So when I say historical in the sense of do I think Adam and Eve were historical, I do. But I don't know to what degree the author of Genesis would press that term historical. Hmm. Um, I lean towards them after, especially in Genesis two, the man and the woman. I lean toward them being a historical couple, but being told through the lens of a highly stylized account that is more literary than it is um, attempting to give history. It's not attempting to give a like what we would say a modern historical account. It's thoroughly at home in ancient Near East epic literature. So to what degree is it literal history? I don't know. I would probably be more minimalist in that regard. But do I think it's just allegory? No. Do I think it's myth in the sense of it's not intending to talk about earthly realities? No, I'm not convinced of that either. It's somewhere in between. So, that answer does not satisfy a lot of (laughs) people who are rigid in their views of Genesis, I realize.
1: So, a lot of people see that there's other, you know, crazy ancient Near Eastern myths where, you know, you got sea creatures being cut in half and Mm -hmm. making land, and that's how, you know, humans are formed or something along those lines. Some people see those crazy stories and they're like, oh, well, obviously they didn't believe it back then. But it seems like you don't take that approach. Why don't you make that connection or uh, assumption, I guess, there?
0: Well, I, I don't entirely dismiss it. There are echoes of ancient Near East myth. I think they took that as real, whatever real means to the person at that time. But if they were to then be teleported to modern post-scientific enlightenment historiography, then they might say, okay, well, no, I don't believe the sky is literally the body of a giant sea monster. It's it's kind of like how C.S. Lewis approached scripture, is he believed that God seeded his truth into all of the cultures and the myths and the tales and the fables of the world, but that when the gospel came, that was what he called the true myth. And, and it doesn't surprise him that God would come and do things in a way that has resonances with other accounts because he believed God was preparing the way for the gospel. I think that's a valid approach to uh, how God uses ancient literature, ancient Near East ideas. And when Genesis was presented, however you believe it's authorship, you know, who compiled it or when it was written or whatever, it was given into the world of the second millennium BC, I believe so it would only make sense if it communicated thoughts ideas and concepts in a way that was recognizable and understandable to people from the ancient near east in the second millennium bc and that's what i am the more i study and teach on genesis the less i come at it from a modern perspective of questions like you know where are the dinosaurs and is the big bang how it happened and how old is the earth and those questions they kind of recede in importance to me as a genesis interpreter and then they pop up later when you're trying to say okay now how do i incorporate what i think genesis is saying literarily how do i incorporate that with what i see going on in the world from a scientific perspective and that's where christians uh, and jewish interpreters come to different conclusions which i think is okay
1: yeah, I think so too. Uh, so a little bit of shift from our topic where we're talking about now. Uh, could you? I I noticed that when we were talking that you took an interesting approach to Genesis as far as interpretive methods. So um, could you describe? I guess a, well, a good way to put it would be just. Could you describe how you interpret Genesis one one? And I think that'll be a good example of how you do it. Um, d-
0: verse chapter one verse one in yep. the beginning or. How it's translated is you know in the beginning when or when God began to create. I it's there are good arguments. So the Hebrew Breshith bara Elohim et hashamayim va et haaret. So the question is, is, is Bereshit is that word translated in the beginning, and that would be kind of the beginning, and that's a traditional way to understand it. And then the next part bara Elohim, God created the heavens and the earth. Or is it translated as Bereshith, which it is in in Hebrew, it's called the construct form. It is a construct. And so it could be translated as in the beginning of, and then what comes after is kind of sets the, the puts the setting of it. So it's not talking about like the beginning, beginning. Genesis 1, 1 is not the absolute beginning. But it's in the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth or when God began to create the heavens and the earth. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, you said, well, that's cheating. You can't do that. (laughs) Yes, I can. I have a PhD in Hebrew. I can do whatever. (laughs) Grammatically, I've heard really good arguments for both views. Robert Holmsted at the University of Toronto wrote a doctoral thesis in which he discovered previously unrecognized grammatical rules governing Hebrew relative clauses. And these double mark genesis 1-1 as a restrictive relative clause and i don't think it can be decided on grammar alone i think that in the hebrew bible first hebrew is not as precise as english Um, english has multiple verb tenses hebrew really has two you know something's either perfect or imperfect in hebrew and everything else all the other nuances usually have to come from contextual clues rather than the grammar so there are passages in the Hebrew Bible that legitimately can be translated in multiple ways. I think Bereshit, the first word of Hebrew in the Bible, I think it's a case of that. It can be legitimately translated in a couple of different ways. And the reason I say that is because the Septuagint, the Old Testament in Greek, they translated it as in the beginning, in RK, you know, the beginning. And that they knew Hebrew pretty well. You know, the Septuagint translators, they weren't dummies when it came to Hebrew. So it's not like it's some glaringly obvious thing, because the Septuagint translators rendered it kind of the traditional way. But it is also in Hebrew, undeniably, it's in the construct form and, and Buresh, the beginning of is how it starts. So we have to take that into account when we're trying to put it in English. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I think Keeping in mind, if you're asking what is Genesis 1-1 teaching metaphysically, you have to keep in mind Genesis 1-1 isn't really intended, Genesis isn't intended to teach metaphysics. What is it teaching astronomically in terms of the singularity and Big Bang uh, and, and the time period? Genesis wasn't written to answer those questions either. So the real question, I think, is what is it teaching literarily? And I think what it's teaching is either in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that phrase heavens and the earth is a is a merism. It means everything. It's like we say beginning to end from the cradle to the grave, alpha and omega, we don't mean just those two endpoints, we mean everything in between. So heavens and the earth is a Hebrew stock way of saying everything that exists this creation. So in the beginning, God did it. Or in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, verse 2, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then it begins to unpack that creation. So ultimately, other than being semantic, I don't think there's a ton of difference between translating Genesis 1-1 as in the beginning God created versus when God began to create or in the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth because they're both getting you to the point that is the earth, that this realm was watery chaos and the spirit of God speaks into watery chaos and brings about orderly creation which is the theme of Genesis 1 all the way through so both approaches get you to the point that the author is concerned about. They may have different metaphysical or astronomical implications, but that's for, I think that's for scientists and and metaphysicians, theologians and philosophers to kick around and see where they land.
1: Yeah, no, that's super cool. I like that. That's very fascinating. I'm sure a lot of people won't be familiar with that idea. You, would you say that Genesis one is about material creation? Or um, you you mentioned that it's not you don't think it's about, you know, the the Big Bang exactly. So how would you uh, what would you say is the best way to describe your view of Genesis one?
0: Well, I think it's about material creation in the sense that the Earth is material creation. I Mm -hmm. I don't think it's strictly allegory or poetry. Um, I don't think it's let me say it this way. I don't think it's immaterial. I don't think God is just creating concepts and ideas. The question that you're asking is, to what degree is there concordance between what we see in the book of nature and what we see in the book of Scripture? To what degree does science and Scripture, uh, to what degree do they concord? To what degree do they match? And to what degree are they different? I'm aware of the views, like for instance, um, John Walton's view on Genesis 1 being about functional creation, creating, uh, presenting creation as a cosmic temple and God bringing his temple into being. And so Walton makes the case that the ancients would not have read it as um, astronomical or biological instructions or step by step. This is what happened. And this is what happened. This is what happened. And if you were videotaping it there, it would look like what it says in the text. Um, Walton says that's not the purpose of Genesis one of this type of writing that it is and I think to a large degree Walton is correct I think the temple temple imagery in Genesis one is undeniable Genesis one and two That everything about it resonates with the later tabernacle in fact on my video channel On my youtube channel, we're going to be doing a video and coming up on series on the temple imagery of creation and the tabernacle imagery Of not just creation but new creation because those are the dominant themes that genesis is written to address but does that mean that genesis has no bearing on creation and the orders of the days have no bearing on the chronology of how earth was created i don't go that far Uh, i think walton and others might say yeah they have no bearing on the physicality of creation Uh, I think even Augustine took that view way back before creation evolution was even a debate. Augustine, I believe, taught that all of Scripture, all of creation rather, was created at once. And God just revealed it in a seven-day pattern for the sake of Scripture being understandable. And I, I don't know Augustine's exact nuances, but there are many examples of Christians saying it has no bearing on what we see in science. I don't go that far. I am what you would call a semi-concordist. I think that if you read Genesis 1 as using figures of speech, generalities of language, phenomenological concepts where it describes something as it appears rather than as it precisely is, like we say sunrise and sunset, even though we know the sun's not moving, I think if you would allow for that, Genesis 1 does line up pretty well with what we know of how earth was created and how everything came to be on this planet, uh, precisely no, but generally I think so. And so I kind of land there in the middle is Genesis. You can't entirely divorce it from material origins, but that doesn't mean you read it like Ken Ham or answers in Genesis or somebody, you know, those folks do and say, yes, this is this and this is this. And it's all literal and precise. Uh, I don't take that approach.
1: Yeah, no, that's super fascinating. Okay, so would so a lot of people would say that when you take some sort, and maybe your answer will describe, uh, help me understand your view a little better. So a lot of people say that when you take a concordance approach, that it puts things in the text that the ancient Israelite would never understood. So, um, so when you talk about like, the stars being formed, or, um, or the the sun, or well, the, the sun being a day four, but then, but it's it's really more like their idea of the stars would have been could have, or most likely would have been, uh, you know, gods or as we see in the a- Egyptian texts and other other cultures. Yeah. But so, would you say that though, in those circumstances, it's still the the writer still referring to these, not these like circular bodies in space, or are you think of something else?
0: Science, friends or foes, which is a free video course available on our website. Um, it the question comes down to the difference between a worldview and a world picture. So your worldview is the idea of you know theism. Like theism is a worldview. There's a God. He's personal. He's relational. He created the world. This is a theistic worldview. A world picture is based on, and, and worldview doesn't change. World picture changes based on knowledge, culture, circumstances, and understanding. So, an example of a world picture would be geocentrism, where before the Copernican Revolution, you know, they just believed that the Ptolemaic view the, the planets go around, or the, the sun and the stars and everything goes around the Earth, but Earth's the center. That's a world picture. Well, the ancient Hebrews also had a world picture, which was you had the dome, which was the rakiach, the firmament. And above that was the, you would say the waters above. And then below the dome, you had creation, which was kind of like the circle of the earth, maybe a disc or kind of a curved disc because they did see some curvation. And then under that, you would have the depths, the abyss, the deep the waters of Sheol. And then below that, you'd have the grave. And that was like, not too dissimilar from the Egyptian world picture, which was one of the sky, when the sky was one of the gods, the earth was one of the gods, the pillars of creation that held it up. These were these are world pictures. And so we want to keep in mind when we're reading scripture, we need to do as best we can to remove our world picture, which is the solar system, the Milky Way galaxy, the rotation of the earth and the sun, you know, that's our world picture because ours comes from astronomy. Well, before astronomy existed, they had to have a world picture that they could wrap their heads around. And, and there were many throughout different cultures. We have to keep in mind that the world picture is communicated through literature and through imagery and symbolism in a way that makes sense at the time. So when you read Genesis 1, you're not going to get a modern Christian world picture, but I think you are getting a modern Christian worldview because the theme and the purpose and the, the underlying point of Genesis is the same regardless of your world picture. It's that there is a God who's bringing order from chaos, who's, who's creating and separating who's delineating you have these two parallel columns where days 1 through 3 God creates the domains and then on days 4 5 and 6 he populates each domain with its corresponding ruler and then day 7 undergirds it all with a sense of rest so this is this is a this is an ancient hebrew world picture that's being communicated to teach a biblical world view which is what we even I as a modern Christian who accepts for the most part, what science consensus comes to the worldview doesn't change, even though I have a different world picture than Moses did. So I have to put myself when I'm studying scripture back in the mindset of Moses or Aaron or any of the ancient Israelites and say, what would they have understood this to mean? Then I can say now, what in my world picture is the same and what in my world picture is different. And, and then that's where you can say, okay, now how do I fit these together? And, and Christians don't agree on that because there are different ways you can fit it together. But ultimately, I do think Genesis is intending to teach cre- truth, worldview truth, but it's using an ancient Near East world picture. We just have to be able to, tr- it's just another step in translation basically translating the world picture as well as the actual words.
1: Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. So let's continue. Um, on the topic of Adam and Eve, you have an interesting view on, uh, I guess, how we should translate the text. Uh, See, so, so how about, let's do this. Let's read the text where it talks about Adam and Eve, uh, or specifically Adam being created from the dust and How exactly you translate that and exactly what that means to you uh
0: genesis 2 7 the lord god formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being um you know i think that's a pretty okay overall way of translating the text what's happening where where i think some people may have problem is i don't think god literally i don't think this text is saying that God literally took a handful of dust and clumped it together and then put giant lips on it and blew into its nostrils. God's kind of getting down and dirty. You know, he's on his knees in the dirt and he's shaping with his very fingers, breathes into and the breath of life. This is a God-involved, God-as-actor kind of thing. The craftsmanship piece would work very well if the text said that God formed man from the clay, but it doesn't. It says dust. Hebrew has a word for clay, this is not it. You can shape clay, you can't shape dust. I think that this is an example of the elevated prose of Genesis. I think this is an image, a phenomenological description of humanity being created from the stuff of the earth. humanity being not angelic, Humanity is not otherworldly, you know, no panspermia theories of human origins. Uh, Humanity came from this earth, but there's a uniqueness where the stuff of the earth and that everything else is made from is in some way uniquely infused with the with the Ruach, with the breath, with the spirit. And only in the combination of that body and spirit do you get a living soul, a soul of life, I think, is actually how it's phrased in Hebrew and Greek. So I don't think this is talking about like material instructions, but I do think it's talking about the concept and and using almost poetic imagery, elevated imagery of humanity being created from, I mean, Adam comes from Adama, the word for ground, the word for like earth so you could some people have said it's like god created earthling from the earth is how you could almost preserve the hebrew wording of it uh that that's what i think is going on in the creation account in genesis 1 and genesis 2 is you're getting you're getting a true event but you're not getting a precise scientific description of what that event would have looked like rather you're getting a theological um portrayal. You're getting a you're getting almost like a word picture being painted. So you just have to allow for non-literal language. Just, we, we have no problem with this, you know, in later parts of Genesis, when it says all the earth came to Joseph to buy grain because there was a famine in all the earth. Well we don't press that for literalism because we know that not all the earth actually came to Joseph because we know that Jacob didn't come to Joseph, he sent his sons. So Jacob and his family and all the ones who remained in Canaan did not come to Egypt to buy grain, even though the text literally says all the earth came to Joseph to buy grain. So I use that because it's an intentionally um, ridiculous example if you were to press it for literalism. my approach is so let's hold any literalist interpretations with very loose hands especially when we're in these early chapters of genesis where there's such elevated mythopoetic language already swirling around in the text
1: yeah totally so it's almost like when you when people some people read genesis it's like okay we're going to read it literally as with with zero metaphor, unless we absolutely can't anymore. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, when it talks about, uh, you know, man, or Adam and Eve, you know, putting into one or whatever to one flesh, Mm -hmm. well, you know, that's obviously a metaphor, you know, nobody contests that. But it's there's an option, there's an opportunity to read Adam being literally made from the dust. So that so that's like, almost like that's the default interpretation. So, and there's no other reason to do otherwise. So with that note, why exactly when you read the text, do you uh, make the conclusion that it's not literal? What in, and I guess the forming of Adam, do you you see a reason to think that it's not literal like that?
0: Well, I, I do, I should admit, I think it's possible that God could have done it literally. And that's what I share with my young earth creationist friends and Genesis literalist friends. I always try to let them know, listen, I'm not saying that I don't believe that it's a literal description because of anything that God could or couldn't do. I'm, I'm on team miracle, right? I mean, I'm a Christian. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That is a literal, not metaphorical, not allegorical account of of a dead person coming back to life. So if God can create everything, God is free to do any miracle he wants. And I'm fine with it. But when I read Genesis, what I ask first is, how does this read in the context of the ancient Near East and the literary clues that the author is giving? What words are used? How are those words used? Do those words have use elsewhere in scripture or in the wider culture? In Egyptian mythology, the gods formed man out of dirt, clay mixed with dirt mixed with water, clay on a, a potter's wheel and literally formed the first man and then breathed or or put their ka their spirit into and the man came alive. So when I read Genesis, I think it's not a coincidence that those are similar accounts. I think the Genesis creation account is drawing from concepts that were familiar, especially to Israelites who had spent 400 years living in Egypt with Egyptian concepts of how the humans and the gods interacted. And I think Genesis is kind of taking a foot in that world and, and seeking to pull the people out of that and say, but let me show you the reality behind all of the myths and all of the concepts that you have. So you whether it's the Anuma Elish and the creation, the Babylonian creation account or the Atrahasis epic and the flood account uh, or, or any of the Ugaritic Baal cycles of creation and the high gods and all of that scripture. It's like it's like Paul did at Mars Hill. It takes a, a point of contact with the culture. In the case of Mars Hill, it was the tomb of the unknown God or the altar to the unknown God. And it says, hey, I see you're onto to something here. Let me show you the real thing. That's exactly what Paul did in Mars Hill. Well, I think scripture was already doing that. I mean, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I think scripture was already doing that in the world of the ancient Near East. It was saying, hey, I know your creation accounts, my Egyptian neighbor, my Babylonian trader friend, my Ugaritic neighbors to the north. I know your accounts, but I think God is saying, let me tell you the real thing in a way that will resonate with all of those and also point people beyond them not tying them to a specific world picture uh, that's what i think is going on It's is too short of a video to, to make that case in full but a lot of really good solid genesis scholars have pointed these things out as well in their commentaries and their works so i definitely recommend people look into it
1: yeah for sure uh, i actually take the same view in regards to i don't, I don't think it's like some little literal god you know picking up dust and breathing in life and all that kind of stuff um and i don't want to get too in too in depth as we've got other things to talk about but i'll add this that uh, john walton notes that more than half of their occurrences uh are shown by context to be unrelated to material when using the word formed or yetzar. yeah you can correct me if i pronounce that right um And he says many of the occurrences communicate how god ordains or decrees phenomena events destinies and roles and uh how it's it's very almost rarely ever used as some literal material creation Um, yeah
0: that's that's how it works in english too i mean the word formed you know you form a committee well you you don't form a committee by building anything physically you come together as a group and something Mm -hmm. so it's in English and in Hebrew, same thing with the word make, you know, when Picard says make it so number one, he's not telling Riker to go build something on the deck of the enterprise, he's saying, here's what I'm wanting to do, you make it happen. That works in English and in Hebrew, it's no different. So yeah, you definitely want to be aware. And and I appreciate john Walton's um, point, because he he helps people see beyond the word study fallacy, which is finding a word, studying it in isolation and saying, and preachers are notorious for this. Preachers are who haven't studied Hebrew in 20 years, 30 years since seminary are notorious for saying, now the Hebrew word means, and they'll read what is a definition of the term, but they'll read it as if it always has that definition. And every instance, that's what the word really means. But no biblical scholar, no Bible translator even, would ever accept that because that's just not how the language works biblical or otherwise
1: so would you so a lot of people think that because it's referring to dust and then in genesis 3, 19, it 19 it says for dust you are and to dust you will return that it's referring to death like that basically that all mankind is made mortal do you have any thoughts on that one
0: I think that's within the realm of idea being communicated. I think that to be earthy is to be subject to the physical limitations of creation. So I don't think humanity was created immortal, for instance, you know, that the, they had to eat from the tree of life in order to live forever, even if you took the Genesis text extremely literally. Um, so. I think saying from dust you were industrial return is a very good poetic non-literal way saying look you're made of this earth and when you die your body is going to be reincorporated back into this earth because that's what you were pulled from i don't see any there i don't even see how that could be uh controversial i think that's just pretty straightforward the earthiness the 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 physicality of humanity and all of the limitations that come with it.
1: All right. So on the topic of Eve, you would also say that it's not a straight physical creation, but you also take a different, a different, you also take a different translation than rib. Can you talk about that?
0: The term when, when God pulled from or took from the man's, um, it's his side. Like, for instance, I'm, I'm just looking at the Net Bible uh, and how the Net Bible says then the Lord God made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man. And it just uses the word part um, that that Hebrew word, Selah, it it's used what it up here. Yeah, um, it just generally kind of means the side and it's the reason that I say that is because the only I believe the only other time in scripture that word is used is when it's talking about uh, how where the poles are going to go on the side of the ark and so it's referring it just it means like side part so when God's giving the instructions for the building of the ark of the covenant you know it talks about put this on the side and it uses that same term I don't know of a place in scripture, and that's why I was looking up here in accordance just to make sure, but I don't know of a place in scripture where it has the definite meaning of rib.
1: Yeah, I can read from Bolton for you. So I'm he said, he says, Adam's statement leads us to inquire whether the translation rib is appropriate for the Hebrew word selah. The word is used about 40 times in the Hebrew Bible, but is not an anatomical term in any other passage. Outside of Genesis 2, with the exception of 2 Samuel 16, 13, referring to the other side of the heel, the word is only used architecturally in the tabernacle temple passages. It can refer to planks or beams in these passages, but more often it refers to one side or the other, typically where there are two sides on the basis of Adam's statement combined with these data on passages. And then he goes on to but he describes as his beyond on mm-hmm. Yeah, even in the, the Halat
0: lexicon, so the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament I'm looking at right now, it gives two meanings for uh, the word. And the first one, it says rib, and, and it'll give examples of how it's used. The only instance where they've cited it, meaning rib, is Genesis 2.21 and following. So what that's saying is, this is the only, if it has the meaning rib, one of your actual ribs. This is the only place in Scripture where it has that meaning. All the rest of the time, it means side—the longer side of the ark, the side of the tabernacle, the side of the altar. Um, even in Hebrew lexicons, this word means most of the time it means side or side part. It it only in Genesis do you see that account uh, being or that word being translated as rib. So I don't think it means rib in a biological, anatomical sense. I think it means God took from the side of the man. He took a part of the man. He, I think Hugh Ross says he did a biopsy um, it, and because the text says he took from the man, from the side, and then he built. And it actually doesn't use the word make or create. It uses the word built, like a building or the tabernacle. And he built it into a woman. So when I read that, I think this is not giving anatomy lessons i i kind of chuckle when people send email chain forwards or like kind of those clickbait emails of like biologists have determined that men have one fewer ribs than women or something like that and i'm like that's not the bible doesn't teach that you know the bible was never teaching anatomical lessons on men and women's rib bones it's basically saying that whatever isha is woman she came from ish so She came from the man, from his side. And I think the rabbinical traditions talk about things like God didn't create woman from man's head to rule over him. And she didn't create him from his feet for him to trample over. But she created her from his side so that when they come together in Hebrew marriage, the man wraps his cloak. He spreads his cloak around the woman. That's referenced in the book of Ruth and takes her back to his side. So it's the recombining of what was separated in the creation so whenever there's a marriage it is the two becoming one flesh again that the two halves of humanity being reunited and there's a lot of beautiful theological imagery in that so when i start to hear people take it down the route of biological or anatomical detail i just think you're 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 missing the main thing and focusing on something that may not even be there
1: so a lot of people would say that the when when they translate a side that they literally think the entire side of Adam, like the little entire side, not just like, you know, the a little part of the side or like a ribcage or something like that. And they and they um, draw theological implications on that based on that they're taking out the side, and then when they come when man and Eve come together in marriage, that it's it's, so, you know, it's one person basically saying like they're equal or something like that. Do you have any thoughts on that one? I, I think you don't need to say that it was the
0: whole side in order to get there. Um, the text says literally he took from his side. So it doesn't say he took one of his sides or, or something like that. In, in Hebrew, it's, it's um, from his side. Hmm. So that's just the way of in Hebrew saying part of something. You know when when you say um if i if i were to say hey give me give me some of that pizza if i wanted to say it in ancient hebrew i would say hey give me from that pizza that's just the way of saying some of i think it's called the partitive sense in hebrew so that's i think that's all that's going on in the passage god just took part of the man's side and he built it into the woman but you still arrive at the same conclusion when when man and woman come back together in marriage, that is symbolically, theologically, a reuniting of the two parts of humanity. The two, ha- what it means to be, the reason I say the two parts of humanity is because when God creates, uh, in back in Genesis 1, when it presented creation of the man and the woman, or excuse me, when it presented creation of Adam, it said in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so image of God is is in parallel to male and female. So male and female, both are the image of God. So whenever there's marriage, it's the coming together of it's the recompleting the fullness of the image of God, because you have male and female coming together. And to me, that's what the text is intending to teach much more than anatomy lessons.
1: So some people, when they look at the text, they come to the text with scientific, uh, scientific ideas in mind. So they're saying, Hey, the, you know, evolution or what we know about science says that God, that Adam and Eve, Adam wasn't made from, you know, the dirt or Eve wasn't made from a rib or yeah, a rib. Therefore, we have to make other interpretations because those are obviously wrong so we have to uh so there must be a different interpretation we have to take um and that's almost like a knock like you know people will say that you know we want to read the bible as it is and not as what science say not as what science says otherwise do you think you're letting science determine how you read the text Yeah, actually,
0: I don't think that's at all what I'm doing. Um, I would argue that the people who are reading Genesis with literal precision are actually letting science uh, interpret the text just as much as anybody else. Hmm. Um, Again, I don't take any interpretation that I take of Genesis because of what I see in science. My interpretation of Genesis is based on Genesis and its literary features. So it's, I think that should trump everything. Genre and literary aspects of the text are the final criteria, not science and not English literalism, which is what most younger creationism is based on. So I, I don't come to the text and try to fit it into a scientific worldview. And I also don't try to divorce it from a scientific worldview. I look at Genesis and science in in this relationship where basically Psalm 19 doesn't make sense if we have to abandon what we see in creation and read scripture totally according to a literal paradigm, because Psalm 19 says that creation tells about God. And it even tells people to look to creation, that it will give forth speech about God. Well, that's not literal language. You know, creation doesn't literally talk. The heavens don't declare God's glory because declare is a verb that means to speak. What the psalmist is saying is look to nature and look to the universe and that will tell you something about God. So when I apply that to what modern scientific analysis have come to, I take that as look to nature and whatever nature says, be cool with it. Because whatever scripture says is not going to completely contradict what nature says. Now, the danger is we may end up reading scripture according to a scientific paradigm, or we may end up looking at something in science according to a pre-arranged scriptural paradigm. And those are two constant dangers to be on the lookout for. Um, scripture and science, I don't think they're foes. I don't think they're adversaries, but I think you can do bad theology and I think you can do bad science and we just have to sift through those things. So when I come to Genesis, it's not based on uh, any particular scientific view. I, I'm not, I have severe questions about the scope of evolution. I, I am not convinced of uh, common descent of all life without something beyond what we see in current evolutionary theory. Now, many theistic evolutionists would say, well, that's just because you don't know evolution enough, and you need to read this scientist and this. Fair enough. Okay, possibly. Um, But I say the same thing to literalist interpreters of Genesis, is you might need to learn some background in Hebrew and ancient Near East and understand the world of the text before you start to dogmatically say, This is what the text must mean. The idea of the plain meaning of scripture uh, is a weasel word. You know, weasel words are things you throw in to make your case sound more convincing than it is. There's not a plain meaning of um, poetic imagery or elevated prose or epic narrative. There's not... The plain meaning is going to be based on what you bring to the text and what you think is convincing and what you think is just plain and ordinary. But that's not going to be the same thing as a reader in the ancient Near East or a reader 3,000 years from now. So I, I think everybody, you know, I encourage people kind of stay in your lane. And if you're going to venture out of it, just do so with uh, a
1: lot of humility, basically. Wonderful play. All right, I appreciate you coming on today, JM. Uh, where can everyone be directed to? You know, what content you're putting out as far as your podcast, YouTube, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, so everything we do is filtered through the website discipledojo.org. Uh, but the best, the quickest way to find me is just go to YouTube and search disciple dojo, all one word. Um, that's where my up to date content is put out. the The podcast series that I've I taught a podcast through the old Testament books for about six years up until COVID put an end to the restaurant that we were meeting at. So, but all of those episodes are archived. So everything from Genesis all the way through the book of Ruth, we have a chapter by chapter walkthrough in 30 minute sessions. And those are all available at um, discipledojo.org slash podcast or any of the podcast platforms. And then our YouTube teaching videos, um so yeah, come come find me there and say hello.
1: Awesome. All right, thanks again, Jam. I hope you have a good day.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Zach.
1: Yeah, sure. Totally.